In the last episode, in honor of hitting the 10,000 download milestone, I recapped the first dozen episodes of this podcast, which basically covered from July through December of 2021. Now this episode, I want to continue that theme, and I want to give you a best of 2022. Again, my goal here is either to remind you of some things you might have forgotten, or if you haven't listened to those episodes yet, to inspire you to go back and see what else you might have missed. And just as a preview, episode 59 is going to be all about otters, so you don't want to miss that. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. I started 2022 by talking about something that's made quite a few headlines this year, and that's wildfire. Now, this year saw extraordinarily long-lasting and destructive fires in Canada, Europe, and even Hawaii. Now, as I discussed in episode 13, fire is natural, and for some species, it's an essential part of a lot of ecosystems. And that said, Our historical approach to wildland fire, at least here in the United States, along with climate change and other factors, frequently makes things worse. Now, if Hawaii, with its humid tropical climate, can have wildfires as destructive as what we saw this past year, something is clearly out of whack in our ecosystem. Episode 15 was about the wild canids that I hadn't talked about yet, foxes. There are six fox species that are native to North America. Arctic foxes, swift foxes, kit foxes, the island fox, the gray fox, and the one that most people are familiar with, the red fox. People often think that red foxes are not native to the United States, that they were introduced by the British for hunting. But the truth is that while the British did import some red foxes in the early 1700s for hunting, they were already present in North America. So why import them? Well, in the early 1700s, red foxes were generally found farther north. Virginia, on the other hand, was home to many more gray foxes. Gray foxes were considered less, quote, fun, unquote, to hunt. When chased, they tend to stay in a much smaller area than their red cousins. So red foxes were imported for sport. Now, I confess I didn't know much about gray foxes before moving to Virginia, and here is what fascinates me about them. Gray foxes climb trees. In fact, gray foxes are known to actually den in hollow trees up to 30 feet off the ground. They have partially retractable, strong, hooked claws that help them scramble up trees to escape predators like coyotes or wealthy British tobacco farmers or to reach food. And this was their response to being chased by dogs and hunters, climb a tree. The hunters may have thought it was boring, but I think it's amazing. To get down, they either jump from branch to branch, or they climb down backwards like a cat. Now, instead of living in gray fox territory, I live in swift fox territory. Swift foxes are smaller than the average house cat, maxing out at around 6 pounds. But if you're going to be small, it helps to be fast. Swift foxes are named for their speed. They can run 30 to 40 miles an hour, which helps them escape predators. And when you're small, there's no shortage of things that want to eat you. Coyotes, badgers, bobcats, and a variety of birds of prey are all constant dangers to this diminutive swift fox. 
Because of their size, swift foxes are more dependent on their dens for shelter from predators than most canids, and they might occupy up to 13 dens in a single year, moving either because of a lack of prey in the area or a buildup of parasites in the den. Recent research has also shown that it's the female foxes who maintain a territory at all times, which makes their social organization unusual among canids as well. Now, swift foxes very nearly went extinct in the 1930s, mostly as collateral damage from predator control programs targeting coyotes and wolves. In fact, swift foxes were extirpated from Canada by 1938, but thankfully, reintroduction programs for these foxes have been incredibly successful. Between 1983 and 1996, 540 swift foxes were released in parts of Alberta, Canada, and by the year 2000, the swift fox population had tripled, making it one of the most successful endangered species reintroduction programs in the entire world. Exact population numbers are hard to estimate, given the swift fox's small size and secretive nature, but it's estimated that they currently occupy about 40% of their historic range. Skipping ahead to episode 17, I talked about the world's most widespread raptors, peregrine falcons. Peregrines are found on every continent except Antarctica, from sea level up to about 12,000 feet, and they live in a variety of habitats, including deserts, grasslands, tundra, forests, and even big cities. Peregrine is defined as, quote, having a tendency to wander, unquote, and this falcon definitely lives up to that definition. While peregrines in regions where the winters are mild may not migrate, tundra-nesting peregrines may go as far as South America in the winter, covering up to 15,000 miles round trip. Now, there are several things that make peregrines fascinating. In addition to being the most widespread raptor, they're the world's fastest animal. When diving after prey, which for peregrines is mostly medium-sized birds, they've been clocked at nearly 240 miles an hour. But catching a bird when you're going 240 miles an hour isn't easy, and most of the time, peregrines don't actually try to snatch their prey with their talons like you might think. What they prefer to do is crash into their prey with a sort of clenched foot, like a 240 mile an hour punch, stunning or killing their prey, and then grabbing it and spiraling downward. They'll actually start plucking as they descend, and they can have their meal almost fully defeathered by the time they reach the ground. Only if they miss with that first high-speed attack will they pursue their quarry with a twisting flight. But peregrines are another species that we came much too close to losing. In the 1950s, their numbers plummeted due to the widespread use of the pesticide DDT. DDT builds up in the fatty tissues of birds and reduces the amount of calcium in their eggshells. Thinner eggshells means higher mortality of the young, which even under normal circumstances is around 60 to 70% in the first year. But if they can make it through that first year, mortality rates drop to around 25% and the average lifespan is 13 years. When DDT was restricted, biologists started releasing peregrines into the wild to help them recover, and people started noticing something interesting. Many peregrines were migrating to big cities and nesting on the sides of skyscrapers, which mimicked the cliffs that peregrines like to nest on. Not only that, but they were doing quite well feeding on the pigeons that are also prolific in big cities. 
Since peregrines mate for life and tend to return to the same nesting sites, these skyscraper nests made it much easier to capture and ban chicks and to monitor individual birds. In many places, there are peregrine cams set up on the nests so interested observers can watch mated pairs lay eggs and raise their young from year to year. In episode 18, I talked about two animals that are specialized for defense rather than offense, turtle rabbits and thorn pigs, better known as armadillos and porcupines. I'll share just one fun fact from that episode about each of them. First, nine-banded armadillos, one of the most widespread of the armadillo species, have two ways of crossing a river. One way is to float across, which they do by taking a deep breath and inflating their intestines, kind of like having an internal life vest. The other way is just the opposite, sink to the bottom and run across the riverbed. Nine-banded armadillos can hold their breath for up to six minutes, an adaptation that evolved to let them keep their snouts submerged in soil for extended periods while foraging. Now, porcupines are the only native North American mammal that produces an antibiotic in its skin. This helps prevent infection when a porcupine falls out of a tree and gets stuck by its own quills. Falling out of trees is actually a significant source of mortality for adult porcupines. It turns out that porcupines fall out of trees fairly often while attempting to reach the succulent buds and tender twigs at the ends of tree branches that are too small to hold their weight. Having talked about all of North America's wild canids, in episode 19, I turned my attention to their counterparts, the wild felines. And while bobcats, lynx, and mountain lions are all fascinating, and you should absolutely listen to the episode to learn more about them, there is one big takeaway that I really wanted people to get from that episode, and it's this. Feral and free-roaming domestic cats are an invasive species. And don't get me wrong, I love cats. I'm a cat person. But my cats are indoor pets, as they should be. But my cat really wants to go outside, I hear people say. Listen, cats are carnivores, and even when well-fed, domestic cats continue to hunt. Their skill and innate desire to hunt makes domestic cats a threat to native wildlife wherever they're allowed to live or roam outdoors. A 2013 study estimated that up to 3.7 billion birds and 20.7 billion mammals are killed annually, and that's just in the United States, by feral and free-ranging domestic cats, making them the largest human-influenced source of mortality for birds and mammals in the country. In addition, it's been shown that free-ranging and feral cats decrease native wildlife abundance and diversity, especially of species that nest on or near the ground. Trap-neuter release programs, for all their good intentions, have been shown by numerous studies to be ineffective at reducing feral cat colony populations. And if Princess Glitterwhiskers fails to come home, coyotes or foxes get blamed, even when there's no evidence. Cats that live or are allowed to free-range outside are at risk from a variety of hazards, including cars, attacks by other animals, accidental poisoning, predation, and increased exposure to disease. Please, please, please keep your cat inside. Okay, jumping all the way up to episode 24, I talked about some strange animals with abilities that sound like they were written by a science fiction author. Tardigrades, also known as water bears, while only about the size of a pinhead, are considered to be one of the toughest animals on the planet. When it comes to enduring harsh conditions, few animals can match the tardigrade. 
When exposed to extreme conditions, tardigrades have the ability to suspend their metabolism. In this state, their metabolism lowers to less than 0.01% of normal, and their water content can drop by up to 99%. They can go without food or water for more than 10 years, and when rehydrated, they'll pick up right where they left off, foraging and reproducing. In this desiccated state, they can survive temperatures of negative 4 degrees Fahrenheit for decades, and even survive a few minutes at 1 degree Kelvin, which, for the record, is negative 458 degrees Fahrenheit. On the other end of the thermometer, they can survive for a few minutes at over 300 degrees Fahrenheit. They can withstand exposure to the low-pressure vacuum of space and up to six times the pressure of the deepest ocean trench. Got radiation? No problem, says the tardigrade. They can handle exposure to a thousand times more radiation than other animals. And they can even survive impacts of up to 900 meters per second, which is over 2,000 miles an hour. Tardigrades have made it through all five mass extinction events on the planet. In that episode, I also talked about cone snails, a species of predatory venomous sea snail that hunts fish by smell using a venomous harpoon. Seriously, I did not make that up. I also talked about another species of snail, the scaly foot snail, also known as a volcano snail or a sea pangolin, that lives deep in the Indian Ocean near hydrothermal vents. Aside from the fact that this snail lives over 8,000 feet deep in the ocean, what makes this snail amazing is that it has an iron shell. Again, I'm not making this up. The shell of the volcano snail is made up of three layers. The outermost layer consists of iron sulfides, which also armors the sides of the snail's foot. It's the only living animal known to incorporate iron into its skeleton, or exoskeleton in this case. The middle layer of the shell is organic and helps dissipate heat, which is abundant near hydrothermal vents, and mitigate mechanical strain and energy, like, say, from getting squeezed by a crab's claw, making the shell stronger. The innermost layer is calcium carbonate, just like other mollusks. And then there's the mantis shrimp. Mantis shrimp have the most complex eyes and visual system ever discovered. The mantis shrimp has between 12 and 16 different types of photoreceptor, compared to three in the human eye. They can see light ranging from deep ultraviolet, which is invisible to the human eye, to the far red end of the spectrum, which is just barely visible to the human eye. And they're also sensitive to polarized light. In addition, some species of mantis shrimp can actually adjust the sensitivity of their long-wave color vision to adapt to their environment. The way the receptors are configured allows the shrimp to see an object with three parts of the same eye, giving each eye trinocular vision and therefore incredible depth perception. But what makes the mantis shrimp even more amazing is their attack. Mantis shrimp are divided into two categories, spearers and smashers, based on the type of claw they have and their method of hunting. Spearers have spiny appendages with barbed tips used to stab and snag prey. Smashers have club-like appendages, along with a more rudimentary spear, not its primary weapon, but still sharp. Both spearers and smashers attack by unfolding their claws rapidly and swinging them at prey. They can do this with incredible speed, accelerating their claws away from their body at 50 miles an hour, about the same velocity as a 22 caliber rifle 
and delivering a force of 1,500 newtons, which is enough to smash through crab or clamshells. The punch of the mantis shrimp is so fast, it results in what's called cavitation bubbles, superheated bubbles which, for a split second, can generate a temperature of nearly 8,000 degrees Fahrenheit in the surrounding water. When these bubbles collapse, they cause an intense shock wave, which is a lot like a second punch that can stun, dismember, or even kill prey instantly, even if the mantis shrimp misses their target. Episode 27 was about venomous snakes in the United States. Now, when I say venomous in this context, I'm talking about medically significant venom, meaning that the venom of these snakes is potentially dangerous to people. A lot of snakes produce some sort of venom, hognose snakes and garter snakes to name just a couple, but their venom is weak and they don't have an efficient way to deliver it. So barring an extreme allergic reaction, they don't pose much of a danger. Besides, you would have to work really hard to get one of these two snakes to bite you. And then there's this statistic. Every year in the United States, between seven and 8,000 people are bitten by venomous snakes, resulting in about five deaths. But a whopping 57% of those bites happen to people handling the snake, which means that over half of those bites are pretty much entirely preventable. And someone once pointed out to me that these studies are unreliable since they're based on self-report, but that actually leads me to think the actual number of people bitten while handling the snake is higher. The reality of snakes, medically significant or otherwise, is this. They want nothing to do with you. You're much too big to eat. Snakes are often described as aggressive, but it's more accurate to say that they're defensive. Copperheads freeze when they see you, not because they're unafraid and holding their ground, it's just the opposite. They're terrified that you're a predator, and they're hoping that you won't see them and you'll just go away. Cotton mouths show the inside of their white mouths as a warning to go away. Likewise, rattlesnakes rattle as a warning to go away. Interestingly, in heavily populated areas, there's been an increase in reports of rattlesnakes that don't rattle. This is attributed to selective pressure put on by humans, who have a real bad habit of killing rattlesnakes when they find them. Near human populations, non-rattling rattlesnakes are more likely to go unnoticed, so they survive to have offspring that are also less likely to rattle. It's Genetics 101. By killing snakes that do rattle, humans are increasing the number of snakes that don't rattle. And they're doing it close to where there's lots of humans. Please, I want my rattlesnakes to rattle. Episode 34 was about some critters that live about as far away from me as you can get, and are all what are called non-placental mammals. Wombats, platypuses, and Tasmanian devils. The best way to describe wombats is like a groundhog on steroids. They're actually related to koalas and are kind of adorable. Now, if you know anything about wombats, you probably know that they poop cubes. How their poop is formed into cubes is not well understood, but they make up to 100 poop cubes every night. And what they do with their poop cubes is pretty interesting. Wombats stack their poop cubes to mark their territory and to attract mates. Don't ask me why lady wombats find stacked poop cubes attractive. They just do. The cube shape not only makes the poop stackable, it keeps it from rolling off uneven surfaces. But this all begs the big philosophical question, which came first, the poop stacking or the cube shape? We may never know. 
The other thing that makes wombats really cool also has to do with their posterior. Wombats have extremely tough butts made up of bony plates with a lot of cartilage and not a lot of nerve endings. When attacked by a predator, a wombat will dive into a tunnel and block the pursuer with its butt. The bony posterior and lack of tail makes it hard for a predator to bite the wombat. But the wombat has a couple other tricks up its sleeve. First, the wombat may do a donkey kick, kicking the attacker with both rear feet. But in one of my favorite animal defenses ever, the wombat might leave just enough space above its back to lure a predator into trying to force its head over the wombat's back. The wombat then uses its powerful legs to drive upwards, slamming the attacker's head against the roof of the tunnel, possibly crushing its skull. Now that's hardcore. Platypuses are one of five species of monotreme, mammals that lay eggs, and are arguably the strangest mammal on the planet. In fact, when they were first encountered by Europeans in the late 1700s, and a sketch and a pelt were sent back to Britain, it was thought to be a hoax. You'll have to listen to the episode to learn the full extent of the weirdness that is a platypus, but I'll just say this. In addition to being a mammal that lays eggs, a platypus has a bill like a duck's but with the texture of a soft-shell turtle shell, a beaver's tail but with fur, a venomous spine, and they hunt using electrolocation. Now, episode 35 was kind of a junk drawer episode. There were several things I wanted to talk about, but no cohesive theme tying them together. Now, much to my surprise, it ended up being the most downloaded episode by a long shot. Full disclosure, this episode makes up a significant portion of that 10,000 download milestone, and it all started with a short video of a horsehair worm. That video collected over 16,000 likes and a couple hundred comments on Instagram and over 4,000 views on TikTok. Now, I had never seen a horsehair worm. In fact, I had never heard of a horsehair worm until my then 15-year-old and I came across this one in a small pool off the Rappahannock River in Fredericksburg, Virginia. When I first saw it, I thought it was a piece of fishing line. About eight inches long and looking like a thick hair, it was waving around and appeared to be tangled in some of the aquatic vegetation. But as I watched, it untangled and began moving around the pool. The name horsehair worm comes from an old belief that they were literally horsehairs that fell into the water and came to life. Tangled masses of these worms can sometimes be found in the spring. Adult horsehair worms hibernate through the winter, and they mate in the spring and then proceed to lay millions of eggs in the water. The life of the microscopic larva is not completely understood, but within 24 hours of hatching, the larva forms a protective covering or a cyst on plants near the water. These worms and their larvae are generally considered to be harmless to pets, livestock, and humans, but they are parasites, and they're not harmless to insects, primarily crickets, grasshoppers, mantids, or other insects that ingest the cysts when they come to drink. Cysts that are consumed by a suitable host dissolve, releasing the juvenile worm. The released worm bores through the gut wall and into the body cavity. There it's going to spend the next two to three months absorbing nutrients through the host's skin or digesting and absorbing the surrounding tissue. Once mature, the worm acts on the host's brain, driving it to seek out water and drown itself. The worm then leaves the host and enters the water, starting the cycle over again. 
Now, I also learned one of my new pet peeves, people who leave one-word comments on social media. The most frequent comment on the video was simply, Parasite. Yes, it's a parasite. I stated that in the description of the video. But that single word is both misleading, it's only a parasite of insects, and it misses how incredibly interesting and cool horsehair worms really are. And with that, we'll call this Best of 2022 episode a wrap. If you haven't listened to those episodes, I hope you will. There were also episodes on bees, wasps, deserts, turtles, owls, frogs and toads, and much, much more. Next episode, we'll be back with new material, and I'll tell you all about otters. You won't want to miss it. Remember to like and follow or subscribe or whatever it's called on your preferred podcast app. If you feel inspired, leave a comment. As long as it's more than just Parasite, I'll be happy. All of that's free, and it lets me know you care. Some other ways to support the podcast, tell a friend to listen. Landscapers, truck drivers, professional athletes, mathletes, mad scientists, this podcast is suitable for anyone. Check out our Patreon page and consider becoming a patron. Subscriptions start at just $5 a month. You can find all the information at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. One-time donations can be made using PayPal. Dispatches from the forest at gmail.com is my PayPal address. It's also where you can send questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes if you feel so inclined. Treat yourself to some Dispatches from the Forest merchandise. Our merch store can be found at cafepress.com forward slash Dispatches from the Forest. There's a ton of stuff there. I'm sure you'll find something that you like. For additional content, check out Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or broadcast whole or in part without express written permission.